This podcast is an unedited excerpt from a live MCLE webcast. See the episode notes for details about the speakers and links to the program's full video and audio recording. Get access to everything MCLE offers for one low subscription fee with the MCLE Online Pass. Learn more at www.mcle.org slash online pass. Please note that MCLE's products, services, and communications are offered solely as an aid to developing and maintaining professional competence. The statements in this recording may not apply to your circumstances, and no legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice is being rendered by MCLE or by its speakers. For full terms and conditions, see MCLE's website. Okay, welcome back, everybody. So, Mike, you're going to take us through how to prepare a witness for deposition. Great. Thank, thanks, Matt, and and, uh, and good morning, everyone. Um, you know, I like it in years where we are able to sequence the preparing of the deposition following immediately by by the uh, preparing a witness uh, because it, because a lot of what I'm going to say reinforces, I think, a lot of Ken's points just from the defensive side of the coin. Um, look, the defensive depositions are not, certainly not a time to relax. Um, in, in fact, I think defending a deposition is a lot more difficult than taking a deposition. And 80% of the work in defending a deposition is the preparation of your witness. Uh, by the time, you know, essentially by the time the deposition starts, it's really too late uh, for you to do much of anything as far as as far as preparing your witness, and and, and why is it important? Well, I think first of all, you have an ethical duty to prepare your witness for 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 testimony, um, and it's obviously it's it's clearly the best advocacy approach. Uh, an unprepared witness can can really hurt your case, especially against these against a skilled questioner or someone who has taken Ken's views. And, and, and prepared uh, quite well to take that deposition. But, but much like preparing to take the deposition, preparing to prepare your witness takes a lot of time. Um, it's time and prepare a witness prep is time consuming for both you and the witness. Um, it, and, and you preparing requires much like in, in taking a deposition, it requires a review of the court papers uh, all the discovery responses and documents, as well as in-depth conversations with your witness, both procedurally and substantively. Um, really, you should be preparing to, to defend depositions and preparing witnesses from the outset of the case. Uh, that's my approach, and I suspect it's the approach um, that most of the panelists take, too. Um, Ken, Ken, Ken mentioned that, um, that uh, he has a different view than most on preparing witnesses. And based on my conversations with Ken, I think it sounds like we have very similar views. And I think the bottom line here is preparation is not a one-size-fits-all approach, okay? You have, you have different witnesses. You have, let, let's take two extremes. Let's take an inexperienced witness who is key to the facts, has lots of documents, and in a, in a, in a high-stake litigation. Right. Um, the other extreme is you have a very experienced witness who has a small factual role and, and you know them quite well. You're not going to prepare them the same way. 
you're also not going to prepare a witness the same way if, if the witness is, is quite confident and, and quite strong at giving testimony. And, and you'll figure that out through, through, through asking them questions, but I'll get to that in a minute. Um, you may have different advice or different instructions for a witness who is, who is quite nervous or, or who has you know, unhelpful things to say. So we'll, we'll talk about those two extremes and those examples, but, but the bottom line here is for witness prep. Um, you should plan on meeting with the witness, if, if your case and budget allow it, multiple times. Um, and, and the number of meetings, I think, is influenced by the complexity of the case, right? the type of case, and, and your general witness. Uh, but but in general, I think of I think of three types of meetings that I, I have with pretty much every witness that I that I take into a deposition. And the first meeting is is you know the initial meeting you typically devoted to providing an overview of the case and explaining the deposition process, um, build confidence and rapport with that witness. And you know it's a time that you can also begin to to calm the nerves to the extent possible of an anxious witness. Um, understand what, what they know and how they fit into the case if you don't already. Um, the, the next type of meeting I call working sessions, and um, that's typically to devoted to discussion of the facts, uh, looking at documents, and, and in my view, um, increasingly lots of mock question and answers in, in most types of cases. Um, and then the final meeting, I like to meet with them right before the deposition, maybe the night before, maybe two days before. And it's time to you know, just re review high level themes of, of testimony and reaffirm their confidence to the extent they need it. Um, for, the, for the meetings, I, I suggest you know, two to three hours probably work best. Um, if you start pushing three hours, I find that witnesses tend to tune out and, and you can't get much, much accomplished beyond that. All right, so, so, um, so what do you do before you meet with your witness? So you need, to you need to assess the rationale and strategy of the case. So in other words, you need to prepare. And, and it's much like Ken said. Ken had a slide that talked about understanding your case and, and your strategic objectives, I think is what he called it. And, and that's no different when you are defending a deposition and you're preparing to prepare a witness to be deposed. Um, witness preparation requires a complete analysis of the case, both factually, you know, to the extent you have documents and evidence, and, and legally. You need to understand the legal elements of the claims. You need to understand the legal elements of defenses. Um, and you also, of course, need to understand your opponent's case, right? Um, and that's going to foreshadow or potentially foreshadow where your adversary may attempt to develop or topics that they want to talk about. Um, you need to understand, will there be other parties with other views, and are they going to ask questions? Um, a, a, something that people don't do enough of, but you should also prepare for the possibility of redirect, right? You, you're not a potted plant on a deposition day. Um, most, there may be some very good reasons not, I mean, you get to, you get to ask your, your witness questions. And a, a lot of young lawyers don't understand that. But um, after after the noticing uh, lawyer finishes questions, you you can ask your witness questions. And 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 I suggest um, 
you take the opportunity to do that if 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 you feel like it's necessary. And you know, you want your you want the facts that your witness has to tell to come out the right way. Right? Don't wait for an errata sheet to change testimony. Don't wait for a much later summary judgment affidavit to change testimony or to supplement testimony or, or give purported context to testimony. Some courts won't accept that. Um, Ken talked about testimonial gems, and he gave the employment law, the employment discrimination lawsuit example. Um, if you are on redirect, if you're paying attention, you can kind of blow up those testimonial gems, right? Um, um, and you can ask follow-up questions to make it clear that in Ken's example, uh, the employee wasn't being fired because of their religious affiliation. Uh, they were being terminated for some different reason. Um, so prepare for that possibility. Um, you also have to understand why is the witness being deposed, right? Are, are, they, are they simply in their individual capacity as a fact witness? And, and that's fine. Are they, are they a 30B6 witness? In other words, are they speaking on behalf of the company or, or a company? And, and if it's that case, you have different obligations. And I'll touch on them at the end if we uh, if we have time. But essentially, you have an obligation to prepare that witness on the topics that they've been designated to testify to. Um, is the witness an expert witness? So all of those things will influence how you prepare your witness. Again, not one size fits all. Um, is the witness your client, right? Or is the witness an, an employee of your client, like Mr. Motorman? Um, in preparing the witness, in preparing to prepare the witness, you need to determine what documents to show them, right? Um, prioritize the documents because too many is counterproductive. Um, what I tend to do is I choose documents that reflect the themes of the case, um, especially if the witness either authored or received those documents. Now, in most cases, or at least the kinds of cases that I do, um, because of email, it's 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 just impractical to show the witness every single document that's been produced in the case or, or even every single document they're on. But if you pick documents strategically and thematically, uh, the witness will be able to handle a document in, in testimony if they had not seen it before or seen it in a long time. And don't forget relevant interrogatory responses, pleadings, affidavits, and the like. Um, they can certainly be asked questions about those as well. Um, Part of the preparation is going to be is going to help the witness to understand how to answer questions about documents they haven't seen or documents they haven't seen in a long time. So if, if you if you prepare to do that, you can you can take the strategy of picking documents thematically and not and not stressing about what you're missing. Um, think twice about producing or, or preparing. Well, think twice before using unproduced documents to prepare a witness. Um, you know, obviously, if they're relevant, they're going to have to be produced, and, and assuming that they're called for by discovery request, which they most likely are. Um, and and don't and don't use privileged documents to prepare, and don't use unredacted versions of redacted documents to prepare as a, as a general rule, because if you do, then you then you potentially waive some privilege issues. Um, now now that you're prepared. And what do you do next? Well, you need to meet with your witness. Um, and the initial meeting, I think, is, is it's quite important. 
um, make sure there's no confusion about the relationship um, if necessary. Are they your client? Are they an employee? Um, explain conflicts, and, and hopefully there are not. Um, you know, talk about how the witness should not discuss with non-lawyers what you talk about because it's a protected conversation. Um, I like to review the deposition process and procedures and logistics um, at the first meeting. Whatever you do, I tell the witness, if you don't remember anything else that we talk about in our various sessions, tell the truth, right? People can understand that. And that's a pretty simple rule to apply. You know, first of all, it's, it's the only golden rule in, in witness testimony, but, but it's also the easiest, right? Tell the truth. Um, and I continuously emphasize truth-telling, truth right? I tell my witnesses I can deal with a bad fact, I can deal with bad testimony, but I can't deal with someone lying or being intentionally evasive. Um, that, just, that just shoots the witness's credibility. Um, so truth-telling is important and, and continuously emphasizes. Um, and, and I should mention, that's not a wink and a nod, okay? Um, you know, we can work on the testimony. We can work on making sure that the testimony comes out in, 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 in the best way we can make it come out. But that doesn't mean lying about it, and it doesn't mean changing substantive testimony. They have to tell the truth. If nothing else, that's all they have to do. And, and explain to the witness that, you know, they're, they're under oath, right? But, but with that comes certain rights, right? Um, they are entitled to a clear question. They are entitled to questions that they understand. And, and you can practice that through your mock Q&A. Um, despite what, what Ken said, I like to tell my witnesses that they're in control, um, not the questioner. Now, the questioner is certainly in control of the questions that, that she or he may ask, but the witness is in control of the answers and more importantly, in control of the pace. And that's how they can maintain control of the, of the testimony with their pacing. And I'll get, that, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, I like to discuss who's gonna be in the room with the witness or is it remote, which is the kind of the world we're living in now and that raises a, a lot of other issues. If it's remote, are you gonna be with the witness? Are you allowed to be with the witness? So talk through all of those things. Um, I like to discuss what my limited role is during the deposition, right? Um, you know, I can only object. Um, the skit we did at the beginning, you know, 99% of those things I said were, were inappropriate and, and improper. Um, I would never do that in a real deposition. But if I have a prepared witness, I don't need to do anything like that. Notwithstanding that I'm not supposed to do it anyway. Um, but, you know, prepare now. It's just too late once the deposition starts. Um, I like to go through, look, there's nothing to be nervous about here. Uh, I, I get depositions are formal legal proceedings, right? But at the same time, all you're doing is answering questions, and we all know how to do that. Um, so it's not that big a deal. Uh, nothing to be nervous about. Just listen to the question and, and, and give, give an answer. Um, you, you do that every day, and, then, and we'll practice that. Um, I talk about breaks and, and, and that you're entitled to breaks. And typically I ask for a break about every hour to hour and a half. Um, I talk about what to wear. That may sound ridiculous, but um, many, many years ago, I was 
preparing a um, very senior executive on the West Coast to give testimony in front of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And the next day, when I met that witness for breakfast before, before the testimony, um, he decided to come in wearing a Hawaiian shirt and Birkenstocks. Um, I was not terribly impressed by that, by that wardrobe choice. And so ever since then, I tell, I tell people what to wear or, or make suggestions rather. Um, and, tip, and generally you want the witness to be comfortable but business attire, um, especially if it's a video deposition. Um, talk about how long the day is gonna last. Uh, it's a long day seven hours of on the record testimony under the federal rules. If, if, the, if, the, if, the questioning, if the questioner takes the full seven hours, that's a very, very long day because that doesn't include breaks, doesn't include lunch. So, you know, seven hours turns to 10, um, but they should be prepared for that. And then last but not least at the initial meeting, I like to determine at least at a high level what the witness knows. Right? Ask general questions, much like Ken's open-ended questions that he talked about actually in the, in the deposition, um, just to get the witness talking. You know, tell me about your role at the company. You know, what do you do? What do you remember about X? You know, what was your role and why? You know, those kinds of things. And, and, and don't worry so much what the answers are, but just, just focus on what they remember. Um, it will tell you a lot about how, how, what kind of witness they're probably going to be. Right? Um, are they self-deprecating? Are they too confident? Right? Are they clueless? Um, you, you need to know those things. Uh, but just get the witness to start talking, talk about their role, maybe show them some limited documents, but, but not really Q&A. Um, just get them talking so you can assess their state of mind. Um, and you can also begin to start correcting witnesses who tend to speculate or, or, uh, or get or overreach in their testimony. And then the following meetings, uh, um, I like to meet depending on the importance of the witness multiple times. And, I, and this is what I'm calling the working sessions where you show them documents, you do mock Q&A. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny, I have, an, I have an outline in here and I've written down in the outline um, that you should review the deposition rules or, or, or golden rules. Um, and I'm gonna spend the next 15 minutes of telling you why you should not do that, or at least, at least not in every case. Um, of course, in the working sessions, you're gonna continuously emphasize truth telling, right? Um, that includes the I don't know or I don't remember witness. Um, I'll get to that person in a minute, but that raises some ethical issues of someone that's trying to tell you they don't recall or they don't remember when you know, either you think they should or, they, or clearly they do, but, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people will, a lot of lawyers will advise, you know, um, only answer the question asked and don't volunteer information, right? Um, I guess my response to that is maybe. Depends on your witness. Um, you know, do you have the time? Yes. I mean, that's ridiculous. Right? No one answers questions like that in real life. You know, do you have the time? Of course I do. It's 1148. Um, that's okay. Um, but again, um, depends it on your witness. Um, substantive review. Um, I, am, I am a big believer in mock Q&A with documents. Um, I find that with very, very few exceptions, 
it's, it's the best way to prepare a witness. Um, get them enrolled and you're enrolled. You, you ask the question like you're going to examining the witness on the day of testimony and see how they react to those things. Um, see how they react to looking at documents they haven't seen in a while. Um, I like to consider different questioners. Um, you've, if you've built a rapport with a witness and I, wanna, I want to prepare a witness on an aggressive questioner, um, it's almost, it feels almost weird or awkward if I do it, but I bring in one of my partners or one of my colleagues and have them ask aggressive questions. Um, you know, the, the general rules, except truth-telling, but the general rules of, of deposition testimony are unnatural, right? Um, pausing before you answer a question, which is, I think is good advice, but that's unnatural and weird. People talk, you know, conversationally. Um, so, but the point is, um, do the mock Q&A and you can figure out what kind of witness you have. And then from there, you can tailor their prep and tailor, um, do, you need to, do you need to impose very strict guidelines or do you, do you give them kind of free reign on, on what to do? And that's going to depend on your witness. Um, Ken talked about uh, a deposition strategy, he called it triage or chronological. So in other words, do you ask, do you ask questions you know, by triage? Um, ask your most important questions first or deal with your most to important topics first or do you go chronological? Um, like Ken, I like to go triage. Um, but I also prepare my witnesses that way. Um, both ways, actually, chronological and triage. Uh, but they need to be prepared for all kinds of things. Um, you know, do you educate? You know, you need to be, be worried about educating versus refreshing. A witness's recollection, right? You can, you can never change substantive testimony, okay? That's obviously inappropriate. Um, if, they, if they saw the witness, if they saw the accident, you know, all of a sudden you can't say they didn't. Um, but, you know, but, but what you are allowed to do is make, make sure that the testimony that your witness has to give comes out in the best possible way. That's perfectly appropriate. Um, like I mentioned before, when you're preparing, prepare for the possibility of redirect. Um, the witness needs to understand that you may do that, that you're entitled to do that. Um, other topics I like to other topics I like to discuss with uh, with my witnesses are um, special rules around video depositions. Right? Discuss you know discuss if it's if it's applicable, but body language is important. Right? You want them you know up kind of like this in their chair, um, not, not slouching over. Um, but there are special rules for remote depositions too. So you need to talk about that as well. Um, you should practice making sure that they understand the question. Um, Ken, Ken said in his, in, his, um, in his module that, you know, he asked that question at the beginning, you know, if you don't understand the question, tell me. And if, and if you if you do if you if you answer, I'm going to assume you understood it. I do that too, um, and for the same reasons Ken does. Um, but you need to prepare your witness for that. Don't start. Don't answer a question that you don't understand. You're allowed to ask for clarification. Right? If you're under oath, you need to understand the question before you answer it. Um, you're entitled to a clear question, and so you should practice that. Pause before answering. 
um, I think is is good advice. You know, formulate your response before you begin speaking. It's very unnatural, but if they do that, the answers tend to be better. They're better, I mean that you know they're they're responsive. They're not speculating, and they're prob they're likely the answers that that or or at least thematically what you practiced during your mock Q and A. Um, it also, of course, allows you allows you time to object. Technically, if there's a if there's a question and then and then your witness gives an answer like that and then you object, um, your objections waived. Um, the the other another golden rule, which, well, 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 tell them obviously you don't want them to speculate. Um, if if they didn't see something or they weren't a part of an email conversation, they shouldn't speculate on what it means, right? Or at least in general. Um, if if you have a question, if there's an email, well, what did Mr. X mean when he said this? Well, obviously, um, I don't know. Your witness doesn't know what Mr. X meant. Um, but but as I say here today, I interpret it this way, and that's perfectly fine. Um, a lot of lawyers will tell their witnesses to uh, related to um, only answer the question asked. Um, short answers are best. Maybe, maybe, um, you know. But again, if 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 you give them too many rules, right? A witness saying, you know, if you tell a witness only answer the question asked, um, don't volunteer information. Um, don't give them more than what's required. A lot of times you're going to find a witness who is so tied up in knots that they're thinking about, oh my gosh, I can't give too much. Um, I can only, I can, you know, I, I, if it's yes or no, I should say yes or no and leave it at that. Um, you're going to end up with a witness that either looks like they're, they're hiding something or a witness that just can't keep things straight and they're going to give poor testimony. Um, you know, particularly if you know your witness has helpful testimony to give, you want him or her to be able to give that testimony, you know, relatively unconstrained or, or, or at least within certain guidelines, but, but, much, but much more relaxed and broader than the traditional rule question has. But again, you have to practice that. Um, you have to see, you know, how much rope you can give your witness and how comfortable they are in answering questions, how well they understand the facts and understand their role and can be able to articulate uh, those facts and their recollections in a helpful way. Um, to me, that is what witness prep is all about. Um, you know, we, we talk about, you know, reading the document when it's presented to you. Um, just simply good advice. Don't start answering questions about an email, um, you know, and, and, and earlier in the chain, it, if, if, you know, if there's more emails in that chain, a lot of times the answers are right there in the document. Um, you know, don't, I, I instruct my witnesses not to panic if they realize they answered something incorrectly or, or if they don't, or if they remember something now, but they didn't earlier. Uh, there's plenty of opportunities to fix it, right? After a break, we can go back on the record and, and, and fix something that wasn't quite right. Um, again, I can ask it and redirect, and we can fix anything that wasn't quite right. Um, 
you know, I tell my witnesses to be professional. Uh, no matter, no matter what, what the opposing counsel does, or or no matter what I do, um, um, they should ignore the theatrics if there are any, and and just they you know, they are there to answer questions and nothing more. Um, you should discuss with your witness discussing during breaks. Right? So you take a, a break and a testimony. Um, local rules differ. And it's very important to know the rules of the jurisdiction of which you know you're 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 subject to. Um, if it's a third-party deposition, um, you know local rules, the local rules from which the subpoena was issued, those will apply. But in some jurisdictions, like Delaware, for example, you can't you can't have you can't have any substantive discussions during breaks, and discussions you do have are not privileged. Um, so, you know, in other words, you could get back from a break and the questioner can ask what you, uh, what you talked about during the break with your lawyer. Um, so I, so in jurisdiction, jurisdictions like that, I typically tell my witness that they're doing great. Um, you know, listen to the question, take your time, that kind of thing. Uh, but no, no substance. You should also discuss with your witness objections, right, about what you're going to say. And it's nothing to be concerned about. You know, um, this, you know, um, coaching is, is never permitted, right? So uh, you saw in our skit earlier, I think I said something like, if you know, you can answer that if you know, or, or how would Mr. Motorman know the answer to that question? Um, obviously inappropriate coaching on my part. And because guess what the answer is going to be, right? 98% of the time, the answer will be, I don't know. Uh, so you can never do that. Um, in some jurisdictions, at least in most jurisdictions, you're allowed only to say object, object to form. Hard stop. Um, in, in certain other limited jurisdictions, you might have an obligation to articulate a bit more than that. Object to form vague. Object to form, you know, lack of foundation or something uh, of that nature. But, but again, be, be knowledgeable about your local rules. But the point is, tell the witness exactly what you're going to say. That way they're not surprised. Matt, yes. Hey, Mike, so um, you mentioned, you know, in inappropriate speaking objections that are designed to coach the witness on how to answer a particular question. But what about, um, what, what about in, in preparing for the deposition before the testimony um, you know, we know we're talking about preparing witnesses, right? Preparing witnesses are good. Coaching witnesses, that's bad. Uh, also potentially unethical. So what's the, how, how do you draw the line? Or is there, is there a clear line between those two things? And if so, what is it? Uh, I, so that, that's, a, that's a very good question and a very tough one. Of course, you don't want to cross the line to coach. So I think about it as... Um, Look, am I changing? You can never change substantive testimony, right? So that's a that's definitely a line that can't be crossed. Um, um, I can't I can't counsel someone not to remember something if they remember, right? That's that's again that's changing substantive testimony. Um, so I, so that to me is is generally the line. Um, I, I talked about the I don't remember witness and I don't recall witness. Maybe that's a good time to talk about this now. Um, 
some some witnesses will take you know you give some advice look if you don't remember say you don't remember that's okay if you don't recall you don't recall and then all of a sudden when you your mock q a you know and what's your name i don't recall and it's starting to get ridiculous um and and the advice i give to that that witness i say look um you don't have to have a hundred percent recollection um if you have a vague recollection of what happened it's okay to say that say look um I don't have a perfect recollection, but my, my best memory is X. That's a perfectly acceptable answer, probably the most appropriate answer. Um, the, the, other, the other, I think, point, Matt, raised by your question is, can I, can I discuss with the witness the ways to say you know, what they know, right? Or, or how, do those, how do those facts come out? I think that's perfectly appropriate. Um, to get your to get that to get that witness's knowledge out in a helpful way, um, or, or in the in the in, in a way that you think helps your case, I think is perfectly fine, as long as the substance doesn't change. So a long-winded way of answering your, a good but difficult question. Um, um, I, I think those are the lines, at least the lines that I go by, um, and I see that Ken is trying. He probably wants to chime in too. And you're on mute, Ken. So, Mike, you're absolutely right um, on that. The restatement of the law governing lawyers says that uh, witness preparation may include rehearsal of testimony, and a lawyer may suggest choice of words that might be employed to make the witness's meaning clear. However, a lawyer may not assist the witness to testify falsely as to a material fact. And um, most lawyers believe that it is not only ethically appropriate to uh, suggest, and, and there's a debate about this actually. If let's say during witness preparation, the witness gives an answer to a, a question, a practice question, and you as the lawyer think that, um, think of a better truthful answer that the witness can give. Um, there's a debate as to whether it's ethical for the lawyer to say, well, that answer is truthful, but, you know, how about this answer? Would this also be the truth? And so you're suggesting a different answer than the witness came up with on the witness's uh, own behalf. And uh, if the witness says, yeah, it's a truthful answer, I could say that, raises the ethical question, is that, is that permissible? And um, there's a, a division of authority on that. But uh, th that's probably the subject of another MCLE program, I'm guessing. So I'll turn it back to you. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad that generally what I said was consistent with what Ken read, but he cheated because he's reading from a book. Um, so, it, so, um, and I think that's right. That probably is subject for, to another MCLE uh, topic, which would be a good one. Um, I also discuss with my witnesses privilege and privilege issues, right? And it can come up, it can come up in a, in a, in a couple of ways. Right, you can say objection. Um, the question may call for the disclosure of attorney-client privileged, you know, communications or work product, and I instruct the witness to answer it, you know, only if it doesn't, or something like that. So, in other words, you, you don't know if it does, but you are you are just raising the possibility that it might, and that that's not really coaching. Um, if you're trying to protect a privilege, perfectly permissible. Um, the other way it can come up is, you know, it, it's clearly, the question's clearly calling for communications 
with counsel. And when you prepared for your testimony, what did Mr. Hines tell you? Um, you know, uh, objection, you know, I instruct the witness not to answer. Um, one of the very, very few times that you're permitted to instruct your witness not to answer. So that is to protect a privilege. Um, so, but, but, but you should practice with your witness that if you give that instruction, that they're going to abide by the instruction, right? No matter what the questioning attorney might say. Um, got a couple minutes left. So we should turn to, um, I want to talk a couple minutes about the 30B6 witness. Um, the 30B6 is a deposition of an entity, right? The, the entity can't speak for itself. So the entity can only speak through its, or well, through a designee. Um, Ken, in his, in his module, talked about you have a 30B6 notice, and the notice has an attachment, uh, an exhibit that talks about or, or requests the topics of examination. So you, as the defending lawyer, you have an or, or you have to select a witness or multiple witnesses. It doesn't have to be the same one, um, but select witnesses to testify as to those topics and designate those people to testify on behalf of the company. Um, very different than a fact deposition, right? And it's important to select the right witness. It does not, contrary to popular belief, it does not have to be the witness that's most knowledgeable about that topic. I, I like to pick an experienced witness uh, a witness that will that will put a face, you know, um, to the company. Uh, you can always prepare them, and in fact, preparation is paramount um, because, well, a you have an obligation to do it, but more importantly, um, the the testimony can bind the organization. All right, so um, unfavorable testimony, or they're they're. The company can be bound by unfavorable responses. Um, the I don't know witness becomes problematic here. I'll talk about that in a minute. And good testimony puts a human face to the company. And that's a, uh, that is a very important thing for a fact finder. But as I mentioned, there's an obligation to educate on the topics that are being examined. It requires a lot of prep if it's done right, and it's quite burdensome. Um, I mentioned that the I don't know and I don't remember questions become problematic responses. And that's because an I don't know or I don't remember in, in a question where it's called for by the topics, the organization might be precluded from introducing evidence on that topic in opposition to a summary judgment motion or, or at trial. Uh, preparation will almost certainly take longer. And preparation will likely involve communication with other employees. Right? I mentioned they have an obligation to educate themselves. So if you're not picking the person that's most knowledgeable about a certain topic, then that person may want to talk to other employees to educate themselves about what happened. And that's perfectly acceptable. 
Keep in mind, however, that the materials used to educate your 30B6 witness are discoverable. Any documents you show them, any conversations they may have had, um, the questioner is entitled to discovery of that information. I think you want to make sure that the witness doesn't make sure that your witness does not research or educate him or herself without your supervision or involvement. You want to know what they're doing. You want to know how they're educated. Um, and keep in mind that the testimony can be used for any purpose. And it can even be played at trial with a witness sitting in the courtroom. Um, so, so a 30B6, um, a lot, it's a different animal, lots of education and quite burdensome if done correctly. Um, I want to touch on just a minute about what, about what you can do following the deposition. Um, for those that aren't familiar, um, after the deposition is over, um, you will get a final transcript or, or a near final transcript and you'll look through it and you can, you can change, you know, it, you can submit an errata sheet, right? So you can, and um, you can actually do quite a bit of things there. I'm not necessarily advocating these things, but I just want to let you know what you can do. Obviously you can change, you can change testimony that's mistaken. Uh, the court reporter made a mistake. Right, or or, um, or you think your witness said something different, um, and and you can make those kinds of corrections, uh, mistranscription corrections. Um, but you can, you can change substantive testimony. Um, I don't advise that you do, but you can. It's it's better to do it on the day of, you know, through redirect or some other means. Um, but you can change substantive testimony. You can change a yes to a no. Um, but, but a couple things there. If you do make substantive changes, um, the, the fact finder is allowed to hear the original answer and the changed answer. Um, I once had a case where I, I took a 30B6 deposition and got really wonderful testimony. And the errata sheet came back and not being hyperbolic, it was about 45 pages long. And it went so far as to say, well, if, if when you ask this question, if you meant A, then my answer is B. But if you meant X, my answer is Y. And it went on and on like that for pages. Well, I was incensed by this errata sheet. So I moved to strike it. Um, so we had a hearing in front of the court, and importantly, this happened to be a bench trial. So in other words, there's no jury. Um, I, I had a hearing on my motion to strike before the court, and the court looked at me and said, you know, Mr. Hines, um, they're allowed to make these substantive changes. So I'm denying your motion. And then he said, um, but keep in mind that I'm the fact finder in this case. And so, you know, when, when, when trial comes, and they give this answer to your question, I'm gonna be allowed to consider the original response and I'm gonna take into account this ridiculous errata sheet. Um, the, uh, the, the case settled uh, three weeks later. Uh, so the point is you can do these kinds of things in erratas, you can change testimony. Um, the, the law is actually quite uh, broad in what you're permitted to do. 
but I'm su I'm suggesting that you should think twice before doing something like that. And if you prepare adequately um, and you prepare your witness well, you can make those kinds of changes if necessary on the day of. Uh, Peter, um, I see you're chiming in. Yeah, I just want to say that, I mean, you know, you described a, a really over-the-top situation, but but I do feel that it's important that if your client has made a mistake, um, you know, which does happen, that you correct it and you correct it, and you haven't corrected it there, but you, you correct it in the errata sheet. <clears throat> I mean, I can think of a couple of occasions I've had uh, where a client gave testimony that was, you know, that subsequent information was brought to the client's attention that made him realize that, that he had made a mistake. Uh, in one case, I remember a client testified about uh, the fact that he had a conversation with um, with somebody, a very important conversation. Things were, you know, important things were said, uh, and and then he testified about a subsequent conversation where less important things were said. And after the deposition was taken, one of the lawyers, it's a big, complicated case with lots of parties. One of the lawyers sent me some information saying, you know, your client testified about this conversation um that that he had and it was at a time when uh when the person he says he had the conversation with was absolutely definitively proven to be out of the country um by subsequent evidence uh and i discussed it with my client and my client said you know what i have to have been wrong about the date um but i am absolutely sure that you know what i said was said was indeed said it just must have been at the, you know, at the at the at a, at a later date, and so you know we put in this an errata sheet that essentially was like an affidavit, um, you know, saying laying this all out. This is what I gave my testimony about. It's been brought to my attention that the client, you know, that the person was out of the country. Um, I've reflected on this, and you know, I realize I must be mistaken about the you know, the date of the conversation, but I stand by the substance of what I said. Uh, and, you know, I felt it would have been a mistake to do anything other than that. Um, so, you know, I mean, if, 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 if something's wrong uh, and you know it's wrong, I think it really makes sense to fix it. There's, there is law out there that says that you can't defeat a summary judgment motion um, based on deposition testimony by submitting an affidavit at that time saying I was wrong at my deposition. Um, but you can defeat it um, with a, an errata sheet, you know, timely given. And understanding there's all the negatives to it, but if the testimony's wrong, in my view, it, it should be fixed. Yeah, I, I agree. I wasn't suggesting you leave the wrong testimony. Um, I, I, was, I was only suggesting, you know, be careful about when you do that. And I think your example is a great example of when you should do that. Um, my example is a very poor one of, uh, of when you should do that. Um, so, um, and, and I see my time is up. So, so in, in, I, I, want, I want you to take away uh, from this, look, witness prep is not one size fits all. Um, understand your witness, learn your witness, how that person reacts to questions, and then formulate uh, your 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 strategy for preparing that person, and and principally in most cases through a mock Q and A strategy with carefully selected documents, and with that I will conclude. Mm -hmm.